and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon, and this week I am joined by Joseph Milligan. Joseph is an awesome dude you probably know from his very, very popular band in Berlin. Joseph has also been producing mixing uh, records for quite a while now. So he's worked with uh, bands like Forever Starts Today, Hard for Hire, Squint, Leave the Former, and I think he has some really cool views on what he's learned from working with some of the biggest producers out there today and how he brings that to all his productions that he's doing these days down in Texas. I think that we touch on some really cool subjects in this one. It's a really rad interview. So once you're done with listening to this, go to his Noise Careers profile, check out his discography, his bio, and listen to his Spotify playlist. Check it out. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, Tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out. And please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today? Today, I'm just going through an, uh, an AKG C214. I'm going through my UA Apollo 16 through a UA LA 610. Nice. Very cool chain. So tell me about your background in music. Well, when I think about that, I, tr- I try to think about like uh, what I was listening to when I was a kid. But everybody, when they're, when they're a kid, you know, kind of starts off either kind of just listening to everything or... You know, the I got into punk rock and that's all I listened to for 10 years. And then I kind of crawled out of my own butt and, you know, started listening to more stuff. And I was the latter part of that. You know, in in high school, what was weird is early in high school, I got into like R&B. And that was like all I listened to, like legitimately like PM Dawn and stuff, you know. And what's funny is that stuff kind of still peeks through uh on pr- the production end <laughs> i hear you you know I, I actually listened to a lot of that when i was young too and uh I, I sometimes still feel a little bit of an influence in it it's funny i still jam pm don i love nice. pm don <laughs> but um you know then the whole high school punk rock thing and uh it was just minor threat and seven seconds and you know anything that wasn't that was you know awful and I was going to, you know, make fun of you for it. And then you kind of get out of that and you kind of expand your horizons. And now it's, you know, all over the place. Nice. So how does that seg to being in bands? Oh man. Well, it's, if you would have heard the, the original, like, uh, embodiment of Anne Berlin, it was, 
very super fast technical punk rock, you know, borderline metal. That was what we were listening to at the time. And it's like, as you grow up, you kind of just want to do something that's more fun to play where you're not just sitting there staring at your hands and, <laughs> you know, feeling like you you have to maintain this particular image to, you know, stay in that scene. And, you know, it was at that point, it was more about like just playing rock music. And that was also around the time when, you know, our, our horizons were kind of expanding and we were listening to more music. And, you know, that kind of coincides there with the change as you grow up and, you know, growing up musically as well. Nice. So you're in Anne Berlin. How does Anne Berlin take you into producing? When we started out, it was it was uh, probably like 97 or 98 when we first went to go record something. And it was terrible. I mean, the guy, the guy, I think at the time, he was fine. I, yeah, I have no issues with him. We were terrible. Let me oh. put it that way. Um, <laughs> we went into this guy's garage and recorded on an ADAP machine. And, you know, for the first few years of us like re- recording and whatnot, it was it was more like, a, I can't believe we're doing this. Oh, this sounds so good. And then you go back and listen to it and it's, you know, garbage. But yeah. like, really, when we got in with uh, Aaron Sprinkle to do the mm. first Amberlin record was where I first started noticing, like, this is the more interesting thing. Everything that's happening to make the record possible is more interesting to me than the actual, like, touring and playing shows part of it. Nice. And he was a, he's a super, super insanely talented guy. So getting to work with him early on must have been pretty awesome. Yeah, it was it was really cool, man. It definitely. And Matt Goldman was also uh-huh. a big deal for us. Um, he was technically the first producer we ever worked with. And I remember him making a change to one of the songs that we had written, and I was livid. Mm. I mean, I was, I was like, "Are you, you're gonna cut up my song?" Like, I was, I was, I had never done, heard of that before, you know. And I mean, mm-hmm. we were all really young, and you know. And then backing up and listening to it, I'm like, "Okay, yeah, that that sounds way better." Uh, there's a lot of you know garbage cut out of this, and like that too kind of got my brain rolling and then it just kind of escalated once we started going with sprinkle nice uh so how does that sag into you producing it really got down to where uh there were younger bands that uh were either around our hometown or you know we would meet on tour and like i would they would play me demos or anything like that and i would get really interested because i was hearing you know what could be in my head you know I wanted to to do that. I wanted to help them and make music that way. And just sitting behind Sprinkle and then from then on going to like uh, working with Neil Avron, working with Brendan O'Brien, that was all a learning experience. I mean, I just shadowed those guys and I was, you know, the parrot on their shoulder for, you know, the entire time we were in there. So just picking up lessons from them and applying that to how I would approach these bands that would approach me. You know, that was really how I got into things. Nice. So do you have your own studio? Right now I'm working out of Orb Studio in Austin, Texas. It's run by uh, Matt Noveski, who's a a really good friend. He kind of gave me a a cool opportunity to go in there and be part of that team and, you know, have a place to call home base, you know. 
when I'm doing editing, I usually I have a, a my own little personal setup at my place that I usually do that at. Very cool. So tell me about something that makes Orba unique. Man, it was the the forethought that went into that place. It was it was built from the from the ground up not very long ago, and the thought. Uh, that they put into every inch of that building is amazing. You can be in Studio B, which is clear across the uh, the building from Studio A, and still track piano and different stuff from Studio A. You know, the way that it's run and wired, we have a full amp wall that is essentially a living line six. You know, we wow. can just pop amps in and out uh, at will and run anything through anything it's it's amazing how clean beautiful and well thought out that place is very cool what instruments do you play i've uh played guitar for well since i was 11 i'm uh 35 so yeah like 14 years uh 24 years wow do some <laughs> math that was never my strong suit that's why i got into music so <laughs> uh, i've played drums here and there piano here and there bass on occasion just pretty much anything has always come really naturally to me like I could always pick something up and just figure out how it works so I I try not to dwell too much on like the theory or proper mechanics or anything I'm just like man if it sounds good let's just do that gotcha so we have like a saying on the podcast that uh on one side you have a Steve Albini who really doesn't get involved in the songwriting and we'll just kind of tell you when the performance is good then you have a John Feldman who will totally rewrite your songs where do you see yourself most of the time on that spectrum that's really a case-by-case situation I always do meetings ahead of time with the bands that I'm working with and I'll I'll ask straight up like what what do you want my role to be here? Like, you know, I, I understand that you're you're coming to me because of my input, because you don't want somebody to just sit back and hit record. Mm. You know, you could do that, you know, way easier than, you know, coming to Austin, Texas. So, you know, if you're coming with me, like, what level do you want? Do you want, like, full, just tear it apart and just start from the ground up with the raw ideas? Or do you want just touches here and there, suggestions, you know? I try to make it case by case because not that formula doesn't apply to every band. You know, if you're working with like a pop punk band or a pop artist or something like that, great. If you're if you're working with, you know, a circus survive or a you know an under oath or something like that, you know, you kind of gotta let the boy be your dog in that situation and you know let them do their own thing. You know, just mm-hmm. kind of be there to be the outside ear. Very cool. What do you think you bring to records most often? I really try, I have, uh, it's actually something that uh, in my earlier stuff that I really struggled with, I love impactful music. I love music that hits you really hard. It sounds like it's about to explode at any moment, you know, and that can apply even to something that's way more chill, way, uh, way more low key, as well as something really heavy and, you know. I, I had a problem early on when I very first started with over-compressing mm. because I love everything to just sound like it's about to explode. And so it was it was a learning process of uh, less is more and, and let everything kind of live in its space and, and get that big sound before we head into anything else, you know, and to post and then just, just overdoing the whole thing. That's a good philosophy. So what's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? I feel especially in, you know, these days, like that with there's so much uh, 
technology accessible to people where they could essentially make what sounds like a professional record in their room. Mm-hmm. And that can be a bad thing. Like uh, when you aren't in a place that is meant to capture sound the way that it's meant to be captured, you know, you're, you, I feel like it deadens your ears a bit. Like mm-hmm. you start to get used to something sounding this way. And uh, a lot of times bands will demo out a ton of songs at home and not really worry about jamming them out and feeling them out before coming in the studio. So, you know, they come in the studio and they're like, well, let me listen back to the demo really quick. It's like, well, you should have been playing this song as a band for a good while now. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you should have this, you know. And you lose out on a lot of that natural band feel, you know. Uh, then it becomes like, you know, cut and paste the parts in. Totally, totally agreed. What's a big mistake or a smart thing you see bands do with vocals? With vocals, I feel like, again, it's a case-by-case situation. I feel like you have to be smart about stacking. Mm. Like, there, there has to be... It has to call for it to be doubled, tripled, quadrupled, whatever the case may be. Sometimes one track of one vocal is more powerful than, and you know, a choir of people singing. You know, and it it's being open to that idea is is something that can make or break a song, or at least make or break that song's ability to really hit somebody. I, I like that too. How about a smart thing you see bands do during the recording process? Again, I feel like that's just being open to change. A lot of bands get demoitis. You know, they've listened to this demo a million times. They already have it in their head how they feel it should be. And, you know, you get in there and you, you're hiring somebody to be that outside ear, to, to be the outside input, then to shut them down because it doesn't sound just like the demo. You know, I feel like that's detrimental to progressing, you know, to learning mm-hmm. And taking advantage of that person's experience in this particular situation, I think being open to exploring the song and and trying to see if it could be better if it goes in a different direction, having that open mindedness is a big big deal. Yeah, no, totally. That that is uh, one of the one of the ones that we keep hearing over and over again is that I think bands spend too much time with their demos sometimes. So demos supposed to be just a quick reflection, look back at it figure out what you do. Yeah, just a raw idea of what we where we see the song heading, you know, and then it's up to them and the producer as a team to, you know, see where it goes from there. Mm-hmm. What happens when you and a band disagree about something? Usually it's, you know, I my entire thought process as far as making records is this is, you know, we're recording music. It should be fun. So I try to keep that, you know, that mindset for everybody, for everything, you know, don't stress out. But there are going to be those times where you hear something and they're just not hearing it the same way or vice versa, you know. And I think in those situations, it's best to just defer to majority rules and try both ideas back up, listen to them back to back, and whichever one feels the best to everyone, that's the one you should go with. Awesome. So the next thing we do is we're going to get into how you feel about some modern production tools. Do amp simulators have a role in your production? Sometimes. I feel like, you know, the more time you spend with them and just checking them out, especially uh, in my situation where I was demoing songs for my band for so many years using all these plugins because it's just the quickest and easiest way to do it, you get familiar with it and you 
say, uh, well, case in point, one of the things I was doing recently, you know, we tracked full bass in the studio and it was cool. It sounded really cool. But once I got in and kind of threw one plug in on it, it just crushed it. It was so much better for that particular instance. That was awesome. But there are other instances where, you know, that you can't get better than that, that tone from the actual amp in the studio. But I feel like being open to that kind of stuff and, you know, experimenting with it and seeing on a case by case special part situation, you know, it it could be cooler than something you might have access to at the moment. No, that's totally agreed. How about uh, sample drums? That I used to use a lot in the past. And it was mainly as a way it was before I started working with uh, Orb Studios, and it was a way for like local smaller bands to save money. Mm-hmm. You know, we we want to get a demo out. We we want people to be able to have something to take home with them from our show, but we don't have enough money to you know pay for the time at, at a proper studio to track drums and. You know, you also don't want them to sound like they were tracked in a garage. So, you know, we've we've worked in the past with with bands that are completely comfortable with that being a means to an end, um, a way to get to the next level. And luckily, um, with Orb now, I I have full capability of tracking every single thing. You know, it makes it a lot easier on everyone. And now, sample drums are more like a special event kind of thing, like a maybe for a one or two bars in a song just to kind of you know if that effect needs to be there nice how about pitch correction pitch correction i believe in i use melodyne studio i i definitely try to err on the less is more side and again that's something i feel like anybody that's in production or engineering or anything like that that's that's a learning situation that's something where when you first get it you just go full bore mm-hmm. and you ruin vocals and then you know as time goes on you get more familiar with it you get uh a little better at it each time and uh having aaron sprinkle as a mentor in that sense was mm-hmm. huge he has an amazing way with vocals and using that particular program and i've spent you know, a lot of time texting back and forth. Hey, how do you do this? Hey, how did you do that? And he's kind of guided me through that to where I feel really comfortable now with just supported vocals, like vocals that were already like almost there. They just need a little touch. No, totally agreed. How about your favorite soft sense? I use a lot. I've actually uh, been using a lot in the, um, in the complete, uh, part of things like as far as, uh, I still keep my old uh, Pro 53 around. That software is is dead, but I I just I still keep it. I love that thing. And there are new kind of loopholes you can find to make it you know applicable to Pro Tools 12, where it's 64 bit, even though that's a 32 bit program. I use uh, FM8 Massive Vacuum. I actually have a, a micro Korg here that actually came with a really cool interface from Korg where you have access to just tons and tons of different like tailored sounds that you can change in any way you want. And Silenth is a really great one. I mean, I just, I love synth in general. And a lot of times I, I, uh, I find myself, I know uh, I need to pull back just a little bit. I'm getting, getting a little too crazy with the cheese whiz with, you know, synth. It's also, again, a case by case situation with bands. Nice. Do you master your own records? I've actually just 
kind of started to. I just wanted it to be an option for people that, you know, may or may not have the money to have their stuff properly mastered. Nine times out of 10, I refer every band I work to, to Paul Levitt, who has just been absolutely fantastic with that. He works really great with bands and uh, as far as pricing and his stuff sounds fantastic. Troy Glessner is fantastic at it, but kind of taking a cue from those guys, I've, I've just recently gotten into the ins and outs of it. Nice. How about three favorite guitar amps? Amps. Mm-hmm. Right? I have to say, I can't really say VHT mm. because VHT isn't really VHT yep. anymore. Kevin Fryette ended up hooking up with Amber Lynn pretty early on, and he, he was the originator of VHT. And uh, he has his own company now called Fryette. And it just sounds like vintage VHT stuff. It's fantastic. And so, which of those is your favorite? Oh man, the Sig X is the mm. one that I used for years. I I still have it at the studio. It ends up showing up on every record, whether it's a chill record or a heavy record. I just I love that. I've grown incredibly attached to Vox amps recently, mm. and just the diversity. You know, the the amazing diversity that they have. I mean, we did some really dirty stuff uh, with them. We did some almost country-sounding stuff with them. I mean, they're all over the map. And uh, they have... Jeez, I can't recall the models. There's like four of them at the studio that we rotate. And just orange in general. I, I really love orange amps. The Again, the diversity, but it's still got a very distinct vibe to it. We actually used my micro terror on a couple of mm. recordings, which has been really cool. And it's it's more of a part kind of thing. Like it, it really the part has to call for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it sounds really great. Nice. I have to hear that uh, Bryant Sig because uh, the Deliverance I have is like one of my favorite amps. Like that's been on like every record I've done for the past like I think like eight years now. Yeah, they're ridiculous. You would think they would only be good for high gain, but they're really not. Nice. So how long does it usually take you to record a song, and how long does it take you to mix a song? My turnaround is usually pretty quick, mainly because I'm pretty OCD and pretty one-track minded. So when we get into something, I'm on that something until it's done. I think probably if if, we were to go in and track a song in a day, uh, you would probably have a rough mix of that and the day after the next one. Pretty pretty fast. What's a good lesson you've learned from another producer? One thing that uh, Brendan O'Brien was pretty amazing at was not overthinking. Like, you know, I, I feel like that's a big issue when you're sitting down, you listen to a demo, and then you spend the next day hashing it out. Mm. Like, I feel like that is completely counterproductive. Brendan was of the mindset of a, let's throw everything on this thing and then just start peeling away the layers until it feels good. He would set up this insane percussion stand with like 10 to 15 different things on it. And he would just tell you to roll the song and he would sit there and just start creating patterns with everything which would sound ridiculous if you just let it go through the whole song, but then you just take it and snippets of what he was doing fit perfectly. Mm. You know, we would throw four guitar tracks onto something, you know, and we would be like, all right, that sounds good. Let's pull this one away. 
We're like, all right, that one sounds pretty good. Well, you know what? It ended up sounding good with two. But at least you tried mm. it. At least it was there. And, you know, you know now. That's pretty good. Do you have, do you have another one or, or should we move on? I really liked Neil Avron's. The guy is uh, working with both sides of his brain at all times. Mm. Got like a math math side going full force and the musician side. So it was interesting to see how he would tackle stuff. And it was, I think... We were tracking guitars, and we had this guitar tech that will go unnamed, mm. and he was obsessed with it being robotically in tune. Mm. Uh, and it was kind of driving us a little nuts, because this is a big rock riff moment, you know? And so I called Neil into the room, and I was like, it's a rock record, right? And uh, we played the riff back for him, and you know, there's some rubbing, there's a little separation, in it, but it sounds awesome. And... Neil just kind of smiled and he was like, hey, it's a rock record, you know? So that mindset of we can get it to where it's a great performance, but it does not necessarily need to be perfect and robotic, you know? Mm. I like that mindset going into guitars, especially. That's really good. Tell me about one of the best moments you've had in the studio. Uh, For me recently, we just wanted to try something different uh, for this band recently I was doing. There was this kind of breakdown part with just drums and guitar and kind of a, you know, gritty vocal. And uh, so I asked the guy to go stand at the very back of the room, and Studio A there is huge. Uh, Mm. So he was in the far corner away from the mic. We were going through an LA 2A, and I cranked the compression up as high as it could go to the point where we could hear his socks on the floor. We just had him yell the line from across the room and it ended up creating this really cool just tense moment that was that was really fun and i that was a fly by the seat of my pants like you know kind of in my head it made sense but i wasn't sure how it was going to translate and it kind of ended up working out nice how about one of the worst moments and what you learned from it that goes back to uh goes back to overanalyzing there was a there was a band recently we were tracking bass, I believe, and the bass player hadn't really been practicing, and this also goes back to the you need to jam out your songs before you come in the studio. He didn't know what to play in a part, so we sat there for, oh, it felt like a day. It was probably about 45 minutes while we just listened to the, to the part, not even the song, the part over and over and over analyzing what should be played there. Hmm. And I think the thing that ended up being played played there was the initial idea. Hmm. So it's, you know, that goes back to the don't overthink it. If it feels right, let's do that. Very good. What's the musical bait of your existence? Man, that's rough. Well, it used to be, it used to be saxophone. I I used to have a massive problem with saxophone. I don't know why. Anytime I heard it, my head just went to, you know, a sex scene in Lethal Weapon or something, (laughs) you know, or, you know, just Danny Glover, you know, rolling his neck and then like, you know, shooting somebody from across the room. Like it just... That's where my head goes. And recently, I've kind of, you know, gotten back into it. There's a lot of things that used to be the bane mm. of my musical existence, and now I've kind of embraced. Right there Ping with ride. You. Ping oh, ride and bell ride, you know. 
Those are two things that were, I, I used to think it was cheesy and, you know, now I actually, I actually like it and I have a mm. hard time talking bands into trying it. Well, oh, China symbol. I will, I can't, can't abide by a China symbol. Yeah. I always say that the exception to that rule is, uh, just like heaven from the cure. That's the only song that works. In. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> um, but I'm right there with you. The China symbol makes me a little insane. So let's get into a little to, uh, your personal taste uh, in music. What's a perfect record someone else has made and what about it makes it perfect? I, I thought long and hard about this. Probably the refused Shape of Punk mm. to Come. What a thought out record. Mm-hmm. You know, just start to finish. They knew what they were going for and nailed it. Um, it's really hard to to think of a record that, that you consider, you know, flawless mm. and that record like it it has everything you want it has stuff that no one was doing you know pretty much the entire thing was no one no one was doing that you know and uh as far as like a, a perfect record i think that's the one you know incorporating different styles uh exploring a side of hardcore that hadn't really been done yet and into integrating you know electronic music with that like it was it was insane. I agreed. I think that that actually would be my answer to this question too. So I am uh, right there with you. Tell me about five of your favorite records and how they shaped your musical growth over the years. I remember I was working at a plastic bottle plant when when I was I think probably like eighteen, and a buddy of mine had given me uh, the Rising Tide by Sunny mm. Day Real Estate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think how it feels to be something on was so different. I wasn't really sure where they were going to go. And I remember putting that record on while I was doing this kind of mindless, tedious work. And before I knew it, it was I had listened to the entire thing like twice. Mm. And I loved that record. It helped me to kind of see that you could have really impactful, big music without necessarily having heavy guitar or you know overly distorted anything everything could still be really powerful and really big yeah i've referenced that record's drum sound a million times it's ridiculous man william goldsmith is Mm -hmm. unbelievable yeah it really is like that record just feels so good and yeah uh tell me about another one i guess in the last few years you are all i see by active child Mm -hmm. that one uh was again kind of an eye opener for me, you know. I mean, his his style is so choir, you know. It's a it's a choir vocal and not even you know a group choir thing. Just a soloist in a choir. Like I mean, that very beautiful, trained, disciplined voice, you know, um, with like just heaps of reverb all over it and using electronic music with a harp. You know, mm-hmm. I mean. That record is another one of those, before you know it, you've listened to the whole thing multiple times. It's just a beautiful record. Yeah, I really like uh, Truck he did on uh, Classics' last record. It's one of my favorite songs of the last few years. Nice. How about uh, another record? Face to Face, self-titled. That was, you know, I think mid-90s. And um, I was I was always a huge Face to Face fan. I think as far as a band that has stood the test of time in my mind, that's for sure them. 
as far as like being a consistent favorite forever. Mm. But self-titled was was cool. It was it was like kind of scary because your favorite band was on a major label and you weren't really sure if they were going to, you know, what what we referred to back then as, you know, selling out mm. and I don't, you know, it I'm sure the term means something different for every generation of whatever, but you know, and it was, and it means nothing, you know, a uh-huh. band, you know, going on to be, you know, to have the ability to continue to make music as a career. Uh, yeah, that's selling out. Anyways, I love that record. It was, it was still face to face. It just was a better sounding record with all the same great songs, all the great hooks, you know, great moments, but still it was the same band, you know, just making good on still being themselves on that big of a, big of a platform. Nice. Uh, how about another one? If we got to go back to the to the formative years, I got to go Pearl Jam 10. Nice. I, I don't think you really need to explain that record. It's just, <laughs> it was, you know, they were grunge bands and, you know, were basically just, you know, punk bands that were, you know, doing, you know, dressing and looking a certain way, got kind of thrown into that category. But Pearl Jam was more or, or less just a, a blues band, like a blues rock band that happened to be from that same area and kind of incorporated, you know, moments of that kind of music into their stuff. And I think when Brendan did the remix of 10, Mm. that was like listening to that record all over again for the first time. It was amazing. I was hearing stuff I had never heard. I had, I mean, I listened to that record on repeat when I was younger, you know, Mm. I think I had like a Discman or something. Uh, you know, if the road wasn't too bumpy, I could get through the whole thing. And, um, <laughs> oh man, you know, don't miss that. With that non, non-skip, you know, shock yeah. technology. But that record, and that was not knocking the, the guy who originally mixed it, you know, yeah. when he mixed it, he mixed it for that era. And that was what was happening at the time. Totally. But Brendan really remade that record for me. I feel like I listen to Brendan's version now more than I listen to the original. Oh, no, it's definitely way different, whereas a lot of remixed records, you're just like, uh, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, it sounds essentially the same. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think there's that much difference in the in utero remixed record. Like, there's some right. like, interesting parts that they added in, but like really tonality-wise, you're like, yeah, yeah whatever. It's not like exactly. changing the record for me. How about your three favorite producers? Man, I got to go with who we worked with, uh, which was uh, Aaron Sprinkle, Neil Avron, and Brendan O'Brien. Mm-hmm. Um, they were all so different and their approaches their their way of thinking like everything was completely different night and day from each other but it was learning from them i could not have asked for three better teachers each one of them was very very quick and open to helping you know to kind of nurturing taking you under the wing and kind of you know showing you how to do things i feel like brendan not so much in the hey let me show you how to do this it was more like a just stand back and watch the tornado happen and try to take some notes. You know, he's he's such a whirlwind of talent and ideas and he's he's an amazing amazing producer, but you don't want to you know, get in his way because mm-hmm. you you might disrupt what's happening, you know. But it was still fun to kind of back up and just watch how he did things and watch his thought process as as quickly as it went by, you know. Neil was more methodical, more thought out still 
amazing at capturing tone, an incredible mix engineer. Mm. Uh, Sprinkle was, you know, Neil actually, Neil was the first one to really be like, sit down here, let me show you how this works. Mm-hmm. And like, that was my kind of introduction to Pro Tools was, mm. was Neil Avron. And from there, Aaron Sprinkle kind of jumped right in and, you know, was continuing to help me with that, you know, and till I could kind of, you know, walk on my own in that, in that sense. Nice. What's your favorite record of recent times and what inspires you about it? Man, uh, back to Active Child. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mercy It mm-hmm. uh, came out not real long ago. I thought it was cool to see somebody whose entire livelihood, as far as their records go, is based on reverb and mm. just wash and, you know, craziness and really pull it all back to where it's a little more vulnerable, a little more bare bones. I mean, still very much, you know, the, the style that he's known for, but not as kind of caked in verb, you know, it was mm. very clear and precise and just beautiful in a different way. And it was cool to see that kind of range. Like he, he doesn't rely on that kind of stuff to make him sound like, you know, like an, an angel from heaven. Nice. <laughs> I like that description. Now I'm going to have to revisit that record. So uh, the last question is, uh, what have you been working on lately? Lately has, has been a whirlwind, which is great. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the only thing you can ask for at this point is, is to be busy. And mm-hmm. I've, I've been really lucky in that sense. Uh, the scene here in Austin is pretty amazing. The bands here, it, it's a wealth of talent. And being able to kind of be right in the middle of all that while it's happening affords me a lot of opportunity to work with all different kinds of bands. Um, and I think starting up here in a few days, I'm starting with a, a new band from here called Later Days. Uh-huh. And it's like kind of a, you know, kind of a callback to to like Get Up Kids and Saves the Day on Vagrant Meets kind of a spacey vibe, you know, and I, they it's really for cool. A while? Or they uh, no, they are brand new. Okay. Uh, they're they're remnants of other bands that were all from here. That's, that's um, so, funny because, yeah, I, I met a band with that name years ago when Steve Evans was recording. Them, so it's, it's weird. That's, that's very hilarious. Similar, <laughs> very similar in sound, too. So that's kind of funny. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, it's that's it's going to be cool. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I've got a lot coming up on, on, the, uh, on the schedule after that. I've just come off of a lot of stuff. So I still have a... I think I got like one or two months this year left uh, that are still available, and those mm. are kind of starting to shrink. So that's great. I could not ask for anything more, you know. Killer. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet: that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 